This is Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Brentano, the co-founder and CEO of Tiny Farms. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Oh, thank you. You are the perfect guest for a show about innovation, co-founder mm-hmm. of Tiny Farms. First of all, tell us what Tiny Farms does and what is the problem you're trying to solve. We are basically a precision ag company. What we're doing is we're trying to grow a whole lot of crickets. The big problem we're addressing is that we basically cannot produce enough animal protein to keep up with the demand. We've got growing population, growing per capita consumption, and also a really huge growing pet food market, which is consuming a huge amount of meat. And traditional meat consumption, uh, you know, your livestock, your pigs, your chickens, and your cows, is a hugely resource-intensive endeavor. You're concentrating huge amounts of feed. You know, 25 30% of all the croplands on Earth are just growing feed for animals. And then we're also grazing about 25% of the Earth's surface for cattle. There's really not any room to expand. And so we really have to find these higher-efficiency ways to supply that animal protein that people need. You have found what I think is a pretty unique niche in this market of mm-hmm. cricket farming, protein farming. I've, I know the argument about cattle using energy and all of that, but what you're saying is that dogs, chickens, all of these other animals, if we can feed those animals your product, we can make equivalent savings maybe? Yeah, so we can offset these huge resource environmental footprints. If we take the pet food example, in the U.S. we're feeding about 30 billion pounds or more of meat just to dogs and cats every year. And that market is growing like 6% year over year. So if we can instead produce crickets, which use just like a tiny fraction of the food and the water and the space required, we can essentially get more from less. We can meet this demand without just completely overextending our current resources. Okay. When did you start this company? So we started in late 2012. We initially got the idea. um, And of course, it, it took a while for, you know, markets to actually develop. We were a little bit ahead of the curve. But we've Do you been mind if I while. ask how you came to this? Like, were you doing market analysis studies or looking at big data? How did you figure out that this was a niche? In that moment, what we were doing was really just thinking about kind of big existential problems. You know, we were trying to decide what should we be spending our time and energy on um, and had really started drilling into food production. Everyone's got to eat. And it's the largest and most resource intensive endeavor that humans do on this planet, and also one of the most immediately going to be affected by climate change, population growth, etc. And what we realized when we were diving in was that meat production was this huge kind of concentration of where all the resources were growing. It was, it was the most inefficient place and also the kind of highest demand. You know, everyone wants to eat meat. And we thought, wow, this yes, is... especially re- with incomes going up. Exactly. The first thing they want to do is have the steak that you and I have. Exactly. You know, right? this westernization of diets around the globe, all these trends were pointing to essentially like a meat crunch in, in really the relatively near future. People need this protein, but how do we produce protein more efficiently, but that still has that high quality nutritional profile? You know, we're looking at aquaculture, we were looking at algae and fungus, and, and then we came across a body of research about insects and their nutritional values and their production efficiencies, historical uses around the world, and it just made sense 
so much sense. Who's using crickets? Or I assume some of these countries have been using crickets for thousands of years. Is that correct? Yeah. So in uh, particularly in Oaxaca and Mexico and some other Central American cultures, uh, there are long traditions of eating crickets and grasshoppers, both kind of interchangeably. A number of African cultures also like different types of crickets that are kind of native crickets and katydids. Um, and then in Thailand, more recently, there's been a, I think there's been a long tradition of eating different insects, but very recently, there's been quite a growth in particularly the cricket market there. And the Thai government has even for the last 10, 20 years been sponsoring and promoting this. And so there's now tens of thousands of small kind of backyard cricket farms supporting those largely street markets. How did you start? Were you right out of college or like what was your motivation here? I guess I was about two and a half years out of college. I went to University of British Columbia, studied absolutely unrelated to agriculture, a program called Cognitive Systems. It was kind of AI, information systems, linguistics. But what that did kind of instill was always this mindset of systems thinking. I'd worked in AI startup and my co-founder, Jenna, who's now also my wife, had been working for an artist. She went to Rhode Island School of Design and she was managing an artist business in L.A., And we'd been living in L.A. for a couple of years and kind of decided this wasn't fulfilling. This wasn't really where we wanted to be or what we wanted to be doing. And that was where we took a summer, you know, went and started doing freelance web development just to pay the bills and and took this time to decide what are we going to do with our lives that's going to be meaningful. And that's kind of what led us into this. It was important that, you know, we found something that we could do that would apply our creativity and actually be meaningful. You know how we're all about organic and sustainable. How does that fit into the cricket industry? What do they eat? How do you follow the path to make sure they're sustainable and that they're organic? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, the great thing about crickets is they'll eat anything, pretty much. I mean, they're, they're basically omnivorous. So anything you could feed a pig or a chicken or a cow or, you know, basically any other kind of animal they can eat. But they really have a very high what's called feed conversion ratio, which is basically the amount of food they have to eat to grow a certain weight is a ratio. And with crickets, it's about 1.7 to 2 pounds of food to get one pound of cricket. So to give comparison, chickens are more like three to one. Pigs are between four and six to one. Cows can range from eight to 20 to one, depending on what their diets are. Um, And so even if you fed them the exact same thing you fed a commercial chicken, you're using much less of that feed. Um, And so you've got this correspondingly much smaller land and water footprint. But then because they are so efficient converting that feed and they'll eat anything, we can then take food byproduct streams and agricultural byproduct streams and incorporate that into the feed formula. So that can range anything from stale bread, which commercial bakeries, you know, large scale ones are producing millions of pounds of stale bread or excess bread. They essentially overproduce by about two what they actually sell. But then we can also go to, you know, agricultural processing. So there are huge streams of byproducts like dried distiller's grains that come out of ethanol production, spent brewer's grains, uh, juice pulp from the citrus industry. The wine uh, industry. The wine industry, exactly. Almond holes are a huge one in the United States. We're, or in California alone, we're producing 150 million tons of almond holes every year. So they're kind of like goats in the insect world. They'll yeah, clean exactly. everything up. Right. And all we have to do is kind of balance you know, the different inputs. So we get the nutritional profile that grows the cricket efficiently. And we understand that pretty well. So we can basically say, okay, we'll take 20% of this, 30% of that, 50% of that, blend it all together, and then we can just grow So have you been able to notice differences in tastes of your crickets by what you're feeding them? One of the reasons crickets are so good is they have a 
pretty mild and generally pleasant taste, regardless what you feed them. But you definitely can tell different things. You'll get either a nuttier cricket. Uh, sometimes it'll be because the cricket is a little fattier, a little leaner. And what would you feed it to make it fatty? You know, you could feed it for one more fat or a higher carb diet. You know, you can make it leaner by having more of a protein and fiber formulation. If we've fed them carrots in the past and they turn just a tiny hue more orange and they actually mm -hmm. pick up a tiny bit of that sweeter carrot taste. Do you ever feed them chocolate? We've never fed them chocolate. It's very expensive. How do your vegetarian or vegan customers feel about this product? Do they have any concerns? There's sort of two camps. There's one camp where folks are vegetarian and vegan primarily because of, you know, sustainability issues, humane treatment of animals, ethical issues. And those are exactly the issues that we're targeting and trying to address with cricket production. And those folks are generally very, very receptive to incorporating insect protein into their own diets. Or what's really exciting for these people is when we say, yeah, did you know there's dog and cat food, you know, you can get with insect protein. And, you know, you've got vegetarians, vegans, but they still have a pet cat that they have to feed meat to. And it creates a real dissonance for them. Um, and so it's an amazing solution for those folks. And then there's folks that maybe have like a, a religious or, you know, spiritual aversion to actually eating living animals. And for those folks, it's that's fine. That's a different set of issues. Insects are, are living things. And if they decide that's not what they want to eat, it's not the product for them. But we, we generally think that we have a great solution for the folks that really see the kind of fundamental environmental and ethical issues around meat production. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today, we're speaking with Andrew Brentano, the co-founder and CEO of Tiny Farms. Tiny Farms is building the infrastructure for a new category of our food system, cricket protein, one that will play a big part in ensuring future food security talking about your products mm -hmm. and and you just covered one which is feeding pets and mm -hmm. what other products do you have and who are your customers our core business is the kind of design and development of a high efficiency cricket production facility I mean, that's really the big problem is we want to get crickets out into the market but how do you do that you know how do you produce enough crickets cheap enough that it can actually become this sort of bulk commodity that could reasonably offset traditional meats. In a way, our core product is actually this method for producing them. And and then also, how do you process them into, you know, palatable ingredient? I read that your method was uh, unique mm -hmm. in that it avoids the monoculture of most agriculture. Yeah. So one of the fundamental problems that we see in traditional livestock production, farming in general, is that you have these huge centralized productions of whether it's, you know, say 10,000 acres of soybeans, or if it's a mile-long chicken house with 4 million chickens in it. When you think about ecosystems and biology, that's like a really unhealthy you know, ecosystem, but also it's incredibly risky because if something comes in there that's a blight or a pest or a disease, it just can you know, wipe out everything very quickly. Uh, so the approach that we take is a more distributed uh, model where we'll set up smaller production units and then we'll put them around in a cluster in a region. And so that way you never have this just huge, enormous centralized population issues of just like having a lot of animals, you know, in place, you know, breathing and pooping and eating and all of that mess and, you know, the potential for pollution, but also that you significantly reduce this biological risk. So crickets get disease and die out like other... So we've been lucky. We've never had a blight. We have a very tightly controlled environment, you know, keep the biosecurity levels pretty high. But there have been 
in actually a different species of cricket than the one we grow, uh, there's a disease, and it only affects crickets. You know, there's no risk to any people or animals, but that have gone around and wiped out some of the cricket farms that have existed in the U.S. One of the cool things about insects, again, too, is that biologically they're so different from people that you don't have the same zoonotic transfer of diseases the way that you've got your swine flu or your bird flu, which can jump to humans, and it's this huge health risk. And every animal has diseases and parasites that can affect them. You know, the cricket is so different. Its life cycle is so different. They don't carry that kind of disease that could jump to humans, so it's much safer. You know, it's not like even with a mosquito or a tick, they're transmitting a disease because they're actually holding some, like, human blood mammalian blood in them. It's not that that animal itself actually gets a disease that, that can transfer to a human. You have a, a cricket powder, but that's primarily for feeding animals. Does it also go into human? So we produce this um, cricket protein powder. It's completely food grade. You know, it's completely perfect to use in human food products or pet food products. We've focused on the pet food market because we see like a really, really big opportunity to offset a lot more of the consumption in that space. Um, but there are a ton of human food products out on the market and a bunch being produced right here in the Bay Area. Chips and snack foods and energy bars and baking flour mixes and stuff that... With cricket flour. With cricket flour, yeah, exactly. And so... You know, in that market, it's awesome, and it's a really great way to start introducing to people this idea that they can eat crickets. And, you know, long term, the best possible thing is we stop eating animals as much and we eat much more insect protein, put it in something that people want to eat anyways, you know, crunchy, healthy snacks. But to really have the big impact we want to have, we have to figure out how we can start really replacing the meat that we're using, you know, as quickly as possible and as big a volume as possible. And so that's where we're really focusing on the pet angle. And there's actually another company here in Berkeley called Jiminy's, and they've released um, a line of dog treats. And the only animal protein in that dog treat is cricket protein. And dogs love this stuff. So you don't have any retail human products yourself as a company? We do supply another brand that is currently distributed at the um, Oakland Days Coliseum, and it's called Oaktown Crickets. So in the cricket production kind of get more into the how that works. You harvest most of the crickets at a certain stage in their life when they've got the kind of optimal protein content to make into the protein powder. But then you maintain a chunkier population to go through adulthood and breed your next generation. Those breeders, we call them, they've got a kind of higher fat content because they're particularly the females are full of eggs. They're really, really tasty. So in Thailand, those are like the prized ones that people want. They'll fry them up and sell them in the market. But for the protein powder application, they're not very useful. So uh, what we do is those get sold for culinary use. And they've, you know, we've had local chefs use them in different specials. And then they're being fried and seasoned and packaged in little snack packs and distributed at the Coliseum. Extra tasty. One of your main goals is to address the challenges that are facing agriculture, what we just talked about. Are there any other challenges that you've experienced as you enter this marketplace? One of the kind of big fundamental things about how the agricultural system is set up is it's very linear. You extract resources, you dig up phosphorus, you create nitrates and nitrites for fertilizers, you pour them on the fields, you grow these plants, you harvest them out, process them, you kind of throw away the byproducts, and then you feed the animals, and the animals create a huge amount of poop, and you don't know what to do with that, and it just kind of sits there, and then the animals get eaten, and it's it's this very 
you know, just linear extractive system of production. And that's kind of part of why we're having so many issues with soil degradation and, you know, waterway pollution. And we're also just kind of running out of phosphorus, which is its whole own problem. What we really see as an opportunity for insects is to help start close some of these loops and create more of a circular system. If you've got, you know, your wheat industry and it creates all of this chaff when you process the wheat into flour, well, if you can efficiently convert that, you know, instead of just, say, composting it or throwing it out there or using it more inefficiently to feed like a dairy cow, you can turn that into a really high-quality protein, putting that through the, basically the cricket as like kind of a bioconverter. You know, we've spent the same amount of nutrients and water to produce all parts of that plant, but if you only eat a little bit of it, that's not very helpful. And then the cool thing about the crickets is uh, the waste they produce is completely dry and stable. So they're not the, releasing... The cricket poop. The cricket what, what poop. What is it called? It's called frass. So that's the technical term for insect poops. It's this, it's basically the consistency of sand. You know, you go by Harris Ranch or you know yeah, the big feedlots and it just... Nose. Exactly. You're producing huge amounts of nitrous oxide and methane and ammonia. These are greenhouse gas emissions that are many, many times more potent than CO2. Instead, you've got this very, you know, stable, safe product that can be applied directly to soil. It's actually produced dry, so you can cost-effectively transport it. You know, you can't... And amend your soil with exactly. it. Exactly. And... Yeah, so you can take it back to the source of production, or you can put it out into gardens, community gardens, home gardens, anywhere. The frass, which is our byproduct, we've just recently gone through the approval process with the California Department of Agriculture to sell that as a retail fertilizer. Um, and so we now have, you know, one pound and five pound bags of that. Where could I find that? We've just listed on Amazon and we're okay. starting to starting in sort of the Berkeley area. We're getting it out to some of the local garden stores and we're hoping that we'll have a chance to really take on life of its own. And besides that, we're also able to sell that wholesale to, you know, bigger garden and uh, farming operations in the area. How did you find the funding to start all these operations? Definitely financing is the least fun and, and hardest part of starting a business. We were able to bootstrap the first several years. We were just actually building websites on the side uh, while the initial pieces came together. And then when we realized that we really understood what the business model was going to be and, and what the growth plan was, we were able to go out and convince a handful of angel investors to come in and put enough money that we were able to launch our first R&D farm down in San Leandro. And so that was really just a process of getting out there, you know, both going to pitch events, networking, going to basically the places where the kind of people are who care about, you know, sustainability in the food system, who understood the issues. And and actually a number of our investors found us, which was great. You know, we had enough of a presence on social media and had been featured at a few events that they said, hey, you know, I really believe in what you're doing. And, and they understood why and they knew it was going to be, you know, a long road to get there, but they're very supportive. And then, you know, from there, once you've got initial traction, then you just kind of, as you need more funding, you go out, find ways of getting in front of the right people and being able to tell that story and and show how, you know, the payoff is going to happen down the road. Everybody's pretty aware. It's a huge problem. Well, and it's amazing how the awareness and focus changed from 2012 to now. Because when we started and we're going out there saying, hey, insect protein is this amazing solution, people just kind of raised eyebrows. And now we go out there and people say, yeah, we know, but how are you going to implement it? Which is a much better conversation because we actually get it to get right into the meat of what we're doing and how we're solving the problem. And we don't have to worry about spending half an hour just convincing someone that they should even take us seriously. So who are your major competitors? 
the industry is so new and the demand for the product keeps growing at a rate that essentially we're not able to directly compete because we're all just trying to keep up with the, the scaling demand. of demand. So, you know, there's a, a farm down in Austin, Texas, which has gotten some great funding and done some cool stuff, you know, building their operation. There's a big operation up in Ontario, Canada, uh, that's been one of the major suppliers in North America. And, Internationally? You know, you know, there are a good number of companies in Thailand and Southeast Asia starting to be a little more presence in Mexico. But when we think about it, you know, for us to saturate this market, they're going to have to be thousands of cricket farms, right? You know, the fact we kind of have this concept of like a benign competition or, you know, when they have a win, that's good for us because we're kind of growing this opportunity together. So so it's much less cutthroat than you find in more matured and saturated markets. There's room to grow in it. Yeah, for huge, sure. Huge, huge opportunity. Have you had any negative response? So certainly, particularly early on, you got a lot of, you, yuck, what are you doing? What's great about people is that we really quickly get used to ideas. And so, you know, the same kind of folks we would talk to six years ago and say, hey, we think, you know, you should try eating crickets. And they'd say, basically, no way in hell would I do that. You know, now, and, and this my test is basically I'm sitting on an airplane and the person next to me says, hey, what do you do? <laughs> How does that conversation go? And and six years ago, it went one way. And now Lyft drivers or just folks, you know, out of the coffee shop, I say, hey, we do cricket protein. And almost immediately, people now start telling me why it's a good idea. I mean, it's amazing how the kind of public perception has shifted. And I think it's really just a uh, a consequence of exposure. If you can find a tasty way to get protein and yeah. not have to pay what you pay for meat. The market's so young. It's still a pretty premium product. But the price point is similar to that of an equivalent meat product. So like the cricket protein powder is basically a dried, you know, it's 60% protein, 20% fat. It's this really you know nutrient-dense product. And it costs similarly to as if you bought meat and dehydrated it, what that would cost, 15 to $20 a pound, which seems like a lot, but then you think you're you know, reducing that down. You can get your fresh crickets, you know, the cost of production is similar to your higher-end meat now. And what's great is that's with really barely any R&D that's been done over the last few and years. barely anybody in the marketplace. Barely anyone in the marketplace. You think about what the price of chicken and beef is right now, that's the result of 50 years and trillions of dollars. Our industry with five years and a few million dollars of development, is already getting competitive with meat. And in the next few years, it's just going to soar below that, which is great. Up until very recently, there'd never been really any indication of actual opposition to the idea. You know, it's just kind of niche enough. No one's really worried about it. But we did, interestingly, have the first kind of high-profile shot across the bow. And what happened was late in July... Uh, when the Senate was starting to go through their appropriations bill process, Senator Jeff Flake actually introduced a amendment that would specifically ban federal funding for research projects around insects for food use. And this really caught us all off guard. It kind of seemed to come out of absolutely nowhere. It was very strange. And essentially, someone had brought to uh, the senator's attention that a handful of, you know, small uh, innovation grants had gone out from the USDA to companies that were developing food products with insect protein. It's not the kind of thing that someone like Jeff Flake would just pick up, you know, someone out there suddenly cared enough to bring that to his attention. So we don't really know exactly what went on. We don't know what went on. Not yet. Yeah. You know, we have an industry group. There's over 90 companies in the United States. In almost every state, there are companies working with insect protein, whether it's for pet food or animal feed or for human food, both on the production side and the product side. So this is actually an amazing like opportunity for American economic growth, American leadership. 
So it's very surprising that you know something would come along like this that you would want to block federal research funding. And specifically, it's the small business innovation research grants that were being referenced. And we've received some of these same grants as well. Was that this year? This was just a few months ago. Now, very luckily, that amendment was not accepted into the final version of the appropriations bill. But we realized like, oh, there are people, you know, that care enough to kind of start throwing up some roadblocks. That's actually a good sign for us that we're being taken seriously in that way. That's a positive way to look at it. (laughs) You know, for us, it's just anytime that we have a conversation with someone and I convince someone that they should take this seriously or they should go to a, you know, A's game and buy a pack of crickets or, you know, they should go to the pet store and, you know, get some Jimmy's treats that they can feed their dog. Like that's, that's a huge win for me. Yeah. You know, every time I'd ride in a lift or sit on an airplane, it's like, that's an opportunity. So yeah, I mean, there's already been this, you know, level of uh, engagement, which is great. I wanted to ask you about other projects. One mm-hmm. of them I'm intrigued with is the Open Bug Farm. In a earlier stage of our business development, we actually developed an open source mealworm farming kit, basically that for people at home who are interested in this, they could either buy the kit from us or they the designs were online. It was all off the shelf components so they could make it themselves. Kind of like having chickens in your backyard. That was the same kind of idea, it's, exactly instead, how we were kind crickets. of modeling. And in fact, a lot of the people who uh, were interested in that wanted to grow the mealworms to feed their chickens. That project didn't end up being you know, a really good business model for us, so we didn't keep selling the kits, but we kept the designs for it out there. Um, but what was really great was around that project, we had just launched a forum, and a huge number of people came to that forum and asked questions and provided expertise, and we were able to share some of our expertise on the topic. And so now there's this huge information resource that just has tons and tons of discussion about raising different kinds of insects at different scales, you know, from commercial to home scale. We're really happy that that exists out there. And we get a lot of inquiries from people that say, hey, I just want to like start growing some crickets for myself or some mealworms or whatever it is. And, you know, we don't have time to help every one of those people individually, but we're able to say, hey, go over to the forum here because there's just this huge trove of information. What do you see in the future? Looking at the future, you know, there's just so much room for growth. For us, the key thing is just get more commercial cricket farms built over the next years, you know, get the production ramped up. Instead of just being able to have niche premium pet treats on the market, there can be full diet pet foods. And then maybe even, you know, your your mainstream pet foods, if like the Walmart brand of dog food could have even like 5% cricket protein instead of meat, we'd be saving millions and millions of pounds of meat, hundreds of millions of gallons of water. And it's all just about being able to grow the production volume to be able to meet those demands. And for us, the the path to doing that is not just building, you know, cricket farms ourselves, but to be able to take the facility that we've designed and kind of package that into sort of a turnkey product that we could then license out to a production partner. Because we get a lot of inbound inquiry from folks that say, hey, I would love to start a cricket farm, but I don't really know how. And there's a great opportunity to leverage that and provide a kind of ready-made solution where you can say, well, here's the setup and here's the training and we can provide the technical support. And then you can grow these crickets and then we can help you process that into the protein powder that we can get out to the market. And so that's really the the longer term growth strategy is being able to engage with all these partners. You know, over the last several years, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people contact us, say, I'm a dairy farmer, but I want to get into crickets. Or a lot of folks with agricultural backgrounds, maybe they grew up on a farm, but their parents' farm isn't quite big enough to support you know, them coming back to work on the farm. But they say, hey, maybe I could throw up an outbuilding and we could have a cricket farm there. There's a huge amount of opportunity for you know people that essentially have 
cricket production has their own business and be able to feed into the supply chain where we can have this huge impact offsetting meat. Fundamentally, what we are after is really converting this, like I mentioned, this linear extractive food production system into a circular sustainable food production system. Right now, we're just so overextended on our demands on the very limited resources that we have available in terms of water and soil and you know, arable lands and even just nutrients available to grow crops. We're going to stop being able to produce food. When we talk to folks in the chicken industry or the beef industry, they're actually all very interested in the potential for the insect protein in the feed for their animals because all these animals are not just eating uh, plant-based proteins, but almost all the animal feeds out there also have some amount of fish meal in them, which supplements key amino acids and fats that you don't find in, produced in plants. Fish meal production is a, a really kind of shocking industry. We basically send out ships that scoop up indiscriminately all the kind of small fish, particularly they'll go scoop up whole schools of anchovettas and anchovies and sardines. And then they just grind that up into a powder and send it off into the animal feed formulations. Essentially, all that farmed salmon is basically eating wild fish that's been caught and ground up and pelletized and then fed back to that salmon. Something like 90% of fisheries are on the verge of collapse or have already collapsed. Um, there's a huge amount of interest in introducing insect proteins into animal feeds. The FDA and AFCO, which is the organization that controls what can go into animal feeds, um, have already approved soldier fly proteins, which is another insect uh, that's being widely grown for use in salmon feeds. And now the, the FDA has also just indicated that they're, they think that that should also be allowed in poultry feed. And poultry feed is one of the biggest consumers of fish meal in the kind of land-based agriculture. Do you have a website that people can mm -hmm. go to? Our company is Tiny Farms. Um, the website is just www.tiny-farms.com. Yeah, you can check out you know, our basic offering. You can contact us through the contact form. Are you selling Tiny Farm hats like you have on? We've printed short runs of shirts and, and had these hats made uh, just for the team. And, and there's enough interest that I think we'll get those listed up there soon. We just have to start thinking about the food system in terms of a self-sustaining system and not like feel-good sustainability, but like this has to be a system that can continue to produce food forever. There are a lot of us living here and we'll need every tool we can use if we want to keep enjoying it. Yep, exactly. Thank you, Andrew, for being on the program. Oh, thank you. This was fun. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll be back again in two weeks. 